0: I'm Michael Morell, and this is a special episode of Intelligence Matters. This week, my colleague from Beacon Global Strategies, Michael Allen, interviews me on the full range of national security issues as we start 2023. Before joining Beacon as a managing partner, Michael served as the staff director of the House Intelligence Committee. And before that, he served on President George W. Bush's National Security Council staff. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: Michael, happy new year.
0: Happy new year, Michael. I think um terrific idea to do this as a podcast, you know, turn the tables on me, uh so to speak. Um so I'm really looking forward to this.
1: All right, this will be fun. All right, let's start with Russia-Ukraine. What are you seeing on the ground today and
0: what do you see in the year ahead? Yeah, Michael, I think it makes sense to break the answer to this question into into two buckets, a tactical Bucket and a strategic bucket. But before I do that, I want to give credit here to one particular source of information on the war. You know, I read a lot on this issue, but by far the thing that I find most informative and most useful to be the daily report on the war that's put out by the Institute for the Study of War. It really is an amazing example of the high quality of analysis that's possible with open source. So I just wanna give them credit because a a lot of what forms my my view comes from them. So first, tactically, situation on the ground today is a stalemate. Both Russian and Ukrainian forces lack the resources to move forward, to conduct an offensive. Russia has not had any significant victories since early July. And for weeks they have been digging in, you know, literally building defensive positions, preparing for trench warfare. They are not going to be moving forward anytime soon, anywhere. You know, for its part, Ukraine is awaiting the supply of new and more advanced weapon systems that have been promised by the West. That I think could change the deadlock in individual locations, but you know I don't think it's going to be enough to change the stalemate across the entire battlefield so that's kind of where we are tactically I think the other thing to note tactically and everyone here knows this right is that the Russians continue to hammer Ukrainian infrastructure targets multiple times a week all of that designed right to deny heat to deny electricity to deny water to the ukrainian people and and i'd make two points on these attacks one they're intentional attacks on civilian targets designed to break the will of the ukrainians to fight they are in my view i don't know if it's you know from a legal perspective but in my view they're war crimes and they need to be called out as such by Western governments and by the Western media and we need to use them right to embarrass any country that is supporting Russia in any way in my view and then number two they're not working and I don't think they're going to work they are not going to break Ukraine's will to fight if anything they're strengthening Ukraine's will to fight I think this is just another example of a huge mistake by Vladimir Putin in this war strategically and i don't think you know from a strategic perspective and i don't think michael this is too strong of a statement the outcome of this war is really in the hands of the west so if you want a guide i think to any big inflection points in 2023 watch the west and its approach to ukraine and why do i say that you know if the west withdrew its support for some reason. And I don't think that's going to happen, Um, and I want to emphasize that. But if we did, Russia could and probably would still win this war, including achieving its overall objective of turning Ukraine into a vassal state. Uh, So Russia could still win, right, if we pulled back our support, you know, and from a policy perspective, we just got to make sure that that doesn't happen. We need to make sure that we hold together the political support here in the U.S. And hold together our allies internationally. On the other hand, you know, if we continue to only slowly increase the sophistication of the weapons we're providing to Ukraine, you know call that the kind of the base case, that's where we've been, let's, con- let's assume that's going to continue to happen. You know the fighting is likely to go on for some time, in my view. It's going to at least drag on well into the second half of this year, if not the entire year but and this is the you know last point i'll make here but if the west if the coalition gave the ukrainians what the ukrainians are asking for namely fighters tanks long-range precision weapons you know president Zelensky's entire list i believe that ukraine could retake all of its territory currently held by the russians including crimea and in the process right we would demonstrate to the world that the west is going to lead and make sure that violations of sovereignty like this you know will not stand and the world would be a whole lot better place you know if that's the outcome and just just one more sentence here which i think is really important i want to remind everyone that what's happening in ukraine is the biggest military conflict in europe since world war ii right and that's quite a statement
1: yeah. Michael, I might have called it incremental progress by the Ukrainians, but I would have come out at the same place, which is that the Biden administration is seemingly not willing to give so many weapons or give everything that Zelensky wants. I mean, why not? You've served with many of these people in the Obama administration. What's going on?
0: Yeah. Let me say you know a few sentences and then turn it back on you because because you look at this as closely as I do. You know, I don't know is the answer you know I don't sit at the table obviously with these people and quite frankly I don't talk to anyone regularly in the administration about this you know my guess would be it's a concern about escalation it's a concern about nuclear use by the Russians and it's a concern that if Russia collapses, if Russia collapses we could be in a much worse place my guess is those are the kind of thoughts that are going on, kind of discussion that's going on as they make decisions to kind of slow roll things. I think that's a mistake. I think we're over worrying those things. And I think if you want to end this war sooner and you want to leave both countries in a better place, you would provide the weapons that the Ukrainians need to end this thing. Is my sense, but I'd love, you know, to hear your view. Well, my sense is that
1: they're playing not to lose. They, The Biden administration is playing not to lose and that they are being way too cautious in not transferring over what we need, uh, what the Ukrainians need. We're just now apparently getting around to sending a lot more infantry fighting vehicles. But to me, that's a little late. And over and over, you hear of requests denials, delays, eventual acceptance, and then it takes a long time to incorporate it into the battlefield. So the Ukrainians are doing great. It's hard to say the Biden administration has been weak, but it seems like they are really talking themselves out of a lot of things for fear of World War III, which is what always ends up in the newspapers, what Biden's concerns about.
0: You're absolutely right, right? They deserve credit for what they've done, right? They deserve credit for standing up to Russia and saying no right they deserve credit for leading the coalition and that supports Ukraine today the Obama administration didn't do that in 2014 when Russia grabbed Crimea quite frankly the Bush administration didn't do that when Russia invaded Georgia so you know they deserve credit for standing up and saying no but I would like to see them be more aggressive in providing the weapons that Ukraine needs right whenever I see them make a decision to send a new weapon system I ask myself why didn't that come two months ago? Why didn't that come four months ago? Right? I ask myself that question.
1: Exactly. Well, you mentioned nuclear weapons. And of course, if we believe that Putin would use them, that is a great reason to sort of self-deter. But after his initial round of threats, I'd say three months ago, most analysts looked at this and said, you know what? I don't think he's going to use it because why would he use it on his own battlefield that he Claims is Russian territory, and he would lose significant diplomatic ground with the Indians and the Chinese. So I've sort of seen the nuclear weapons specter decline. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. So, on the use of, we're, we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons here, right? On their use, you know, the Russian rhetoric has died down. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is the public rebuke. Of russia on this issue from china during chinese president xi's meeting with german chancellor schultz in early november and i think that was a very important thing for china to have done and second and this is only a guess um i don't know for sure is that we probably in the form of bill burns sitting down with his russian counterpart or through jake sullivan to his russian counterpart sent russia a very strong message on how we would respond to a Russian use of nuclear weapons and what they heard gave them pause so I think probably those two things you know have changed the dynamic here a little bit with regard to the use of tactical nuclear weapons and you know that is a very good thing now I'd say the probability has gone down but it's not zero you know I can still imagine situations where Putin might feel completely cornered and feel he has no other choice but I do think I do think the threat has gone down. And there's
1: some suggestion from the administration on occasion that at least in the newspapers that if the Ukrainians tried to seek or had some success in Crimea that might provoke Putin. Do you credit that at all?
0: So certainly Crimea is is you know the most important piece of what he currently holds to Putin, right? Certainly. But all the reasons that you talked about, right, for why the use of nuclear weapons would be a mistake to Russia, right, stand in Crimea as they stand in eastern Ukraine, it would make Russia a pariah state. The Chinese would undoubtedly break with the Russians over the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Their military effectiveness, right, unless you use many, many of them, are highly questionable, right so the value you get out of it is is not significant you probably draw NATO into the war in Ukraine right not into Russia but into Ukraine in some way so there's huge downsides for Putin and those those are true in Crimea as they are anywhere else in Ukraine
1: My right, last question on Ukraine can you comment a, a little bit on Putin's political position
0: yeah so I think you know not surprisingly Putin is highly attuned to his own politics I think sometimes it's easy for us to sit back and look at authoritarians and say they don't have to worry about their politics right but they do just like any politician anywhere but what he's attuned to is not what most of us would think right most of us would think he's attuned to anti-war voices in Russia no he's attuned to and reacts to critiques from the ultra nationalists right from those those folks who have supported him for years and who actually want him to be more aggressive in Ukraine you know not less he did the partial mobilization several months ago in response to their critiques and he angered right the general population by doing so and I think also the the regular missile and drone attacks that we're now seeing on ukrainian infrastructure are largely in response to the critiques of the ultra nationalists he's afraid of them he's trying to manage them by responding to these critiques and by trying to co-opt them at the same time so he's asked them believe it or not he's asked them for a monthly report you know i think it's an effort to bring them under the tent so he's he's highly attuned to his politics and to these ultra In particular, I think the last thing I'd say is I think it's very hard to say if Putin is any is under any near term political threat. You know, I don't see it, but 33 years as a CIA analyst taught me that it's very hard to see successful coups coming. Right? If we, if the U.S. intelligence community sees a coup coming, it probably means the troubled leader does as well and can move to stop it you know it's the unseen coup that gets you both as a leader and as an outside analyst so would i be surprised if we woke up tomorrow to news that putin's been arrested or he's been shot you know not at all um but him being around you know a year from now wouldn't surprise me either
1: okay let's move to china let me just start off very go ahead
0: No, I was going to say, let's move to an easy one.
1: (laughs) That's right. Um, What will 2023 bring to the US China relationship?
0: Yeah, so I think we start 2023 with the US and China in a Cold War. Uh, I don't think that's an overstatement. In fact, I think it's pretty indisputable. When China clearly chooses to maintain a strategic relationship, with Russia, despite Russia's invasion of a sovereign nation, when it threatens reunification with Taiwan by any means necessary, you know, when we place tariffs on Chinese products, largely for domestic political reasons, when we deny technology to China in a bid to contain their own technology goals, we're in a Cold War. So I think that's where we are starting the year. I think it's important to to ask what's the cold war being fought over it's not being fought over ideology china doesn't want to export communism or even its own version of authoritarianism you know it's not a cold war being fought over territory you know outside of taiwan south china sea a couple of border disputes china does not have territorial ambitions rather i think the cold war is being fought over technology supremacy that will define future economic and military supremacy you know and it's being fought over political influence around the world you know China does not want to use that influence that it has in other countries for a global common you know like the way we have and I really believe that but rather it wants to use that influence solely for its own narrow economic interests you know it wants to be able simply by its economic might to dictates too strong a word. So I'll use influence again to influence countries around the world to choose economic policies that are in China's, you know, strategic interests. And my guess, Michael, is that we'll end 2023 deeper in that Cold War than we're starting. You know, I think the forces that have brought us here, you know, nationalism in China and politics here in the U.S. are just too strong for there to be any other outcome. This is all going to come at a cost. You know, it's going to come at a cost to the global economy. Globalization had much more economic benefits than costs. And the reverse of globalization, you know, call it decoupling, which is going to be a big part of this Cold War, is going to come at an economic price. It's going to put some of our allies in an uncomfortable position, and it's going to put some U.S. companies, you know, who do business in China, in an increasingly uncomfortable position. So that's kind of where we are.
1: We'll be right back with more of this special conversation between Michael Allen and Michael Morrell after this short break.
0: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.
1: So, for years now, and appropriately so, we've been worried that we were falling behind the Chinese. At a minimum, they were catching up with us. I'm wondering whether you subscribe to some of the new thinking out there that says, you know what, the Chinese are not 10 feet tall like we used to see. They have structural, economic issues, demographic issues. And because Xi Jinping and his zeal for the party has killed the golden goose. He's overregulated the economy. Do you put any stock in that or do you think they're still winning?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. I do. So I buy in. To the Hal Brands argument that China is no longer a rising power, but rather a peaking one. You know, Hal lists three reasons why China is no longer a rising power, right? First is the huge systemic challenges they face, demographics, debt, you know, among others. Second is the, what you just mentioned, right, is the slowdown and even reversal. Of economic reform this is the goose right that killed the golden egg or th- this is killing the goose that played the golden egg and third is the fact that the world is beginning to stand up to china and to say no to its policies that are inconsistent with the rules-based order that most of the world wants to live in to house three points i would add a fourth which is i think that china we're going to see increasingly sclerotic Policy making in Beijing, as Xi's preference for rule of life gets in the way of what was once a great Chinese strength, which was a change in leadership every five or ten years that brought new people, new ideas, fresh fresh approaches to policy making. China's losing that, right? So I think you look at all of that and and Hal's argument, you know, that they're a peaking power makes sense. The caveat I would put on it is that doesn't necessarily change our current situation with China because China has grown so strong and so confident and so aggressive, right, over the last 10 years that we have to deal with this country, right? And as Hal argues very persuasively, I think, right, them being a peaking power actually makes them more dangerous in the short run, right? If they feel they have less time. Right.
1: Michael. What about Taiwan? We can't have a conversation without discussing them. Most timelines say something general of it gets more dangerous the longer we get in the decade. I hear people within the government always saying 2027 is the time frame that we're most worried about. First of all, let me just ask you bluntly, do you think that Xi Jinping is going to go for it?
0: Not anytime soon is the direct answer to that. Michael, as you know, there's been a ton of rhetoric regarding Taiwan in both Beijing and Washington over the last couple of years, more last year than the year before. A lot of increasingly aggressive military exercises by China. Quite frankly, aggressive political moves by Washington, Speaker Pelosi's trip, multiple statements by the president, you know, walking back from our longtime policy regarding defending Taiwan. You know, all of which have raised tension. In the straits over the past couple of years and i expect all of that to continue in 2023 you know i'd note that since the pelosi trip china you know is now at a new normal in terms of military exercises vis-a-vis taiwan um there's a higher tempo more aggressive level than we saw before the trip and i don't think that's going to change but despite all that tension you know i do not believe that china is going to initiate An attack on taiwan in 2023 or anytime soon after that there's one caveat to that which is china would i believe respond militarily to a major policy mistake in either taipei or washington you know say taiwan declares independence or say we walk away from our one china policy neither of which i expect to happen but if one of those two mistakes were made then i believe china would would respond militarily what's the best way to kind of think about she's thinking on Taiwan I think you know a former CIA China analyst who I really respect John Culver um, really one of the best in the business has coined a phrase which I think is exactly right John says you know for she at this point Taiwan is a crisis to be avoided not an opportunity to be gained and i think there's there's really a couple of reasons for that one is she has big domestic issues that he needs to attend to most importantly you know ensuring that china can continue to grow its economy and ensuring that china avoids the middle income trap right solving those systemic problems we talked about earlier mm-hmm. uh, that is going to determine his legacy more than anything else Right. If Chinese growth goes south under his watch, that is what will be on his tombstone. If he succeeds in making China rich, then that's his legacy. And second, and I think this is really important, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is China is not yet prepared to attack Taiwan at a high enough level of confidence of success. Right. And attacking Taiwan and losing would probably be the end of the road for any Chinese leader. So he's Um,
1: deterred. It's too big of a game.
0: He's exactly, that is exactly the point. He's deterred right now. What do they need to have more confidence? They need more amphibious lift to move troops across the straits. They need more nuclear weapons so that they can be seen by us as being able to go toe to toe with us on the nuclear front in a Taiwan crisis. And they need enough economic decoupling from us so that China could more easily weather broad-based US sanctions you know that would follow a Chinese invasion right that's what i think they're trying to pursue and i think the point about them not being ready was captured best by xi himself right when he when he ordered his military to be prepared to take taiwan by force by 2027 he was admitting right that he has doubts that they can do it today Yeah. So if you think about and this is this is probably the most important point on China, Taiwan. So what's the right policy approach for the United States? And you said it. Focus on deterrence. Right. Focus on ensuring that in 2027, 2030, 2035, you know, whatever year you want to pick, that any Chinese leader is going to continue to have real doubts about their ability to take the island. And I think that means three things it means building our military capabilities at an aggressive pace it means helping taiwan build the right military cap- capabilities at an aggressive pace and it means continuing to build our coalition of allies who would be willing to stand up you know to chinese aggression against taiwan deterrence it's really simple you know my assessment of what we're doing on this front is that we're heading in the right direction but that we're not moving fast enough and we're not moving aggressively enough. So I want to see us be more aggressive in pursuing that deterrence. So we see people all the time say
1: another reason we need to win in Ukraine is to send a message to Xi Jinping, a demonstration effect about sanctions and just what the West can do when provoked. Do you buy that or do you think Xi Jinping is just marching to his own tune?
0: No, I think the outcome of the war in Ukraine matters. You know, the Chinese study everything and they will study this, right? This will be in some Chinese working group, leading leading group on something, right? They'll, they'll actually study this. But they don't know the outcome yet, right? You know, we talked earlier about if the West were to pull its support from Ukraine, Russia could still win, right? And we talked about if the West gave Ukraine the, the support it's looking for, Ukraine could win and you know sooner than most people think so we don't know the outcome yet which means that China really isn't in a position to come to any conclusions but I think it matters the outcome in Ukraine absolutely matters to the way she thinks about Taiwan
1: okay I want to go to Iran in just a second but were you surprised give me a quick answer by Xi Jinping's rapid rollback of China's anti-zero COVID policy
0: so this is a bit embarrassing surprise no shocked yes i really thought that she would not relent and that he certainly would not want to rip the band-aid off all at once so i got that wrong right got to admit it got it wrong and i think one of the lessons here and we sometimes forget this again when we're looking at authoritarian countries i think the lesson here is that public opinion in china matters you know it does influence policy making you know i first learned about this when i was briefing president bush in 2001. And we had the EP3 crisis in March of that year. Mm -hmm. And I learned it a couple times since, but I keep forgetting it because it's so easy to think of Chinese leaders doing whatever they want to do. You know, one way to think about this is that if they could just do whatever they wanted to do, they would not need to use censorship and they would not need to use propaganda, right? To shape the views of its public, um, which of course they do every day. So public opinion in China matters. And this is a great example of it.
1: Turns out welding your own people into their apartments is unpopular, even in
0: China. Yeah, how about that?
1: More of Michael Morell's conversation with Michael Allen after this short break.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: All right, on Iran, tell us about the protests that have broken out. They seem broad based, or at least they've been ongoing, maybe not broad based. Is it enough to bring down the regime?
0: I think the really important point about the protests of the last several months are that they are the latest in a series of protests that have occurred since 2017. There's been a number of them. The demands of the protesters have been different each time but there's a common theme and the common theme is that there's a significant and growing share of Iranians mostly young Iranians who feel alienated that's the right word I think who feel alienated from their government who are much more modern much more reform-minded than their leadership that's the common theme having said that right there's also a large share of Iranians who are supportive of the regime and many Iranians who don't have a view one way or the other right just like here in the United States current Iranian president or you um, hardliner got 18 million votes and he got 70 percent of the vote in the last presidential election so there is support for this regime my strong guess Michael is that this round of protests is not going to result um, in any significant political change some of the protests since 2017 have fizzled out some have been snuffed out the 2019 protest was crushed by the security forces this one because it has involved women and i think that really matters here this one because it's involved women has been handled a bit more adroitly on their part there's been some crackdowns there's been some concessions there's been some interesting work behind the scenes where they'll arrest somebody and then they'll let them out and they'll go to their family and they'll say hey you need to you know make sure your kid doesn't come out in the street and protest so they've handled this you know in a different way because so many women involved right i'd make two final points one is that you never know when a situation can turn in a radical new direction you know for example one of the key turning points in the fall of the Shah was a 1978 theater fire that killed 400 people in a iran and so you never know right what might happen tomorrow that could that could take this out of control just important point important reminder and second and this is really important too and this kind of goes with the russia point no one should assume that the fall of this regime would lead to an iran that approaches the world in a very different way right we got to remember that just like the iranian leadership today the Shah wanted Iranian hegemony over the entire Middle East. The Shah was interested in the acquisition of nuclear weapons, right? So this is not just a the policies of an ideological regime. These are you know Persian policies that you know have been in place for literally hundreds of years.
1: Fascinating. all right. I want to ask you one more question about Iran and then I'm going to give you the off the wall what are we not thinking about question but let's talk about the nuclear deal right now Biden says it's not happening the State Department says it's quote not on the agenda right now but the way I look at things is that the Iranian regime could be a threshold nuclear power and lo and behold you look back in Israel and Bibi Netanyahu is back in charge and if I remember correctly there was a lot of time spent in the second term of the Obama administration talking BB out of bombing Iran. What do you think? Do you think it's possible they're going to go to war?
0: Great question. I think the probability of war between Iran and Israel has gone up, you know, as a result of the outcome of the Israeli election, the formation of the most hardline conservative government you know probably in israel's history and while the probability is still low you know it is for 2023 i think the most likely place where we could see you know a new major war break out i think there's two dynamics to think about when assessing the probability of an israeli attack on iran's nuclear facilities one is the status of iran's nuclear program i think michael you said something really important You know, I think it's fair to say that Iran is closing in on what many of us have long thought its goal is, right, which is to be a threshold nuclear power. That is, right, to have the necessary pieces for a nuclear weapon and that they can put them together quickly, right? I think we're getting very close to that if we're not there already. You know, talking about this can get technical very fast, and I don't want to do that, but If Iran wanted to detonate a nuclear device in the Iranian desert for all the world to see, you know, which would change the dynamic in the region overnight, they could probably do so in a handful of months, particularly if they took some shortcuts on the nuclear weaponization work that they halted several years ago and still need to do. And the Israelis, right, know all this. They watch this more closely than they watch anything and what's happening with the Iranian nuclear program creates an incentive for the Israelis to act right creates exactly the same incentive that Netanyahu saw 10 years ago the other dynamic which I think pushes the Israelis in the other direction pushes them away from military action is that Israel still can effectively destroy all of Iran's nuclear facilities on its own they would need the help of the united states and i don't think the biden administration would provide it and without that help the israelis could not destroy everything they need to destroy iran would certainly produce a nuclear weapon in response to being attacked and they would blame it on israel's attack right and they would have that talking point you know to use um in the world therefore i think there's voices in israel urging caution And there's voices in in Israel urging or arguing that aggressive covert action rather than a military strike is the way to go in dealing with the Iranian nuclear program. So I think there's a push and pull here, you know, and we'll see we'll see how it plays out. But I think it is absolutely the place to watch in terms of a new conflict in 2023.
1: Okay, last question for now. What is the big thing that might, we've already talked about big issues, but what's the thing we're not thinking of? Is it another terrorist attack? I think I saw you say that on Face the Nation. Is it something about the economy? After all, I remember that you were trained as an economist at the CIA. What is the big thing that's possible that's going to happen in 2023 that we're not talking about?
0: So what I said on Face the Nation was that I would not be surprised if there were a terrorist attack against a US interest, right, an embassy, a military facility somewhere in the world in 2023. And I think that surprised, you know, a few people who are looking at the terrorism front as as kind of quiet. Right? We don't hear about terrorism much anymore. But the truth is that terrorists around the world are bouncing back, which is not surprising because it's actually very easy for a terrorist group to rebound um it's very easy to degrade them you know when you put pressure on them it's very easy for them to rebound you know when you take that pressure off and so terrorists are bouncing back and nowhere is that more true than in africa where al-qaeda and isis you know occupy vast swaths of territory and where, where they terrorize and they brutalize civilians two of Al Qaeda's five major hubs are there half of ISIS's affiliates are in Africa these groups are acquiring military equipment weapons explosives drones you know so far there hasn't been an attack against U.S. interest but there certainly could be there's an ISIS resurgence going on in the Middle East which is not getting a lot of news but there's been four major ISIS attacks in Iraq since mid-December again not against U.S. interest but that could change and then there's Afghanistan you know we know that the emir of Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and his deputy and the top recruiter are all in Afghanistan the even bigger problem now in Afghanistan is ISIS it's thriving it's conducting frequent high profile attacks there and what's particularly worrying about ISIS in Afghanistan is that they're recruiting fighters from neighboring countries and of course that raises the concern that those foreign fighters could return to their home countries right and conduct attacks against Western interests so you know all this is happening right Michael at a time when we're taking our foot off the counterterrorism gas pedal as we focus on Russia Ukraine you know there's resources flowing away from counterterrorism I know that we're walking away from some important foreign partnerships. I've had representatives of foreign governments, you know, complain to me about that, uh, that they're worried about that. So I'd say terrorism is something to worry about in 2023 that most people might not be thinking about.
1: Michael, thanks so much for doing this today. I think it was uh, terrifically entertaining. Intelligence Manners is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again,
0: Mr. Ballin' Podcast Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on The Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them. But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin' Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.